The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody tonight. The last several weeks, as some of you know who've been coming, we've been unpacking the Buddhist teachings on path. And he described the spiritual path in different ways. The more precise way is this eightfold path, but it's just easier to remember it as a path where we bring awareness to different levels or frequencies of our lives. So the gross level of our life is this more ordinary level of relationship, right? And surviving in this world, this ordinary world. And so we generally would call this morality or ethical conduct. The Pali word um, used in the tradition is sila, ethical conduct, living with integrity, living with the deep value of non-harming. So this whole world of our relationships, bringing awareness, bringing wisdom and awareness, that's obviously a part of waking up. And then there's looking, knowing the mind. And uh, in the same way that I'm really concerned about living in harmony with all of you and with my partner and in terms of how I earn my livelihood and how I relate to other human beings and other creatures on the planet, I also want to know how the mind is relating to the mind. That whole ecosystem of our psychology emotions. Is it a mess? Is it a war zone? Is it all shut down? Or is it a beautiful place? Hopefully every once in a long while at least, right? The quality of the mind, the quality of the heart is really something beautiful. But we want to bring awareness to that. We want to take responsibility in the same way we want to take responsibility for our actions in the world and our relationships in the world and the suffering in the world, we want to take responsibility for the mind, just the qualities of the mind. And then the most subtle place we bring our wisdom awareness is to this other aspect of the mind, the most subtle aspect of the mind. In kind of our usual language, we might call it our beliefs. In Buddhism, we talk about it more as the view or the understanding of the mind not just sort of the particular weather system in the heart and mind, but what are the deeper pervasive underlying views through which I'm living my life, perspectives, frames through which I'm living my life. So that's the wisdom area where this place of understanding and intention and the more gross aspect of the mind is the basic qualities, is there is the mind kind or does it have a lot of ill will? Is it greedy or is it generous? Right? So it's sort of more ordinary, like what's the weather like right now in the mind? And then what are my relationships like out in the world <clears throat> with other people? And we're bringing awareness to these three areas. So we've been recently talking about this area of sila, ethical conduct. And this is It's such a potent area in terms of just finding basic happiness. Like there there really isn't any ordinary accessible happiness for someone who doesn't care about this place in life. How am I relating to others? How am I earning my living? How am I using my words? Because if we're not attentive, we cause ourselves and others a lot of problems. Sylvia Borstein, she's one of the senior teachers out at uh, Spirit Rock, <clears throat> wonderful Buddhist author. She sometimes asks when she's teaching about right speech, wise speech, she'll ask people like to raise their hands if you've ever broken a bone in your life, you know, and a few people always raise their hands. And, you know, she'll check, like, how long ago did you break your wrist? Or, break your whatever. And they'll say, you know, three years ago, and she'll ask, does it hurt still? 
And you'll see that, you know, even though a lot of people are broken bones, they heal and often don't really cause problems down the road. And then she asks, how many people, you know, have used speech in a way that really caused harm, hurt you, hurt others? You know, how long ago? Does it still hurt? (laughs) Yeah, it still hurts. You might even remember, I'm sure I remember, I can bring to mind some things I said when I was a kid, some, you know, whatever, 55 years ago, that I still kind of, ooh, right? It's still a wound. And, uh, you know, we probably remember words spoken to us that still hurt. And just to understand how impactful our actions in the world, our actions with each other, the words, and even the thoughts we harbor affect ourselves and affect people around us. And to, because we care about our lives, to begin to pay attention to our actions, our words, and our thoughts, not because we're trying to be a goody two-shoes, but because we care what we're setting in motion in our own heart and around us. It actually matters the kind of words we speak, the kind of thoughts we think, the kind of actions we act out. It really matters. In a very clear way when we pay attention. So there's really no way to be happy neglecting our actions. Some people, uh, some of you know Ajahn Chah. He's quite well known. He's dead now. A Thai meditation master, Buddhist monk, died in the 90s. <clears throat> and trained a number of important teachers here in the West, people like Jack Kornfield and Ajahn Sumedho and many others. And... Um, After a while, you know, when starting in the 60s and definitely through the 70s, 80s, a lot of Westerners went to Thailand to study with him. Some of them ordained. Um, And uh, sometimes the local people, the Thai people would ask, you know, a lot of these Westerners are coming. They're really interested in meditation. You know, you're not really talking so much about sila, about ethical conduct to some of these people. Certainly the, the people who ordain, but just, you know, people like us, lay, lay practitioners, not monastics. You know, a lot of us come to these places like Common Ground Buddhist Meditation Centers because we're interested in the meditation piece and not so much the ethical conduct part of the practice. You know, you didn't come here probably tonight to be told, you know what, you probably shouldn't tell lies. You know what, you probably shouldn't hit, you know. But, so his response when people pointed that out, like, you know, all these Westerners coming, they basically just want to learn how to meditate. They're not that interested in behaving. Um, (laughs) What about that? Because, you know, the Buddha taught that's as important as these other aspects of the path. And he said something like, yeah, you're absolutely right, but they're going to find out for themselves that without bringing mindful awareness, this wisdom awareness, into this world of our speech and our actions, there isn't any real depth to our spiritual lives. There has to be this crossover between what we're learning and the relative silence and stillness of meditation and how we treat the cashier, how we treat our partner, how we treat our cat and dog, how we earn our living, how harsh, how much gossip we are in the world. All of that matters. And if there isn't that kind of integration between the gross in the sense of our this bustle of our interactions with each other, and the refined, the sort of inner space of the mind and heart, if there isn't a lot of integrity through all aspects of our life, then we're kind of living a lie, you know, that lack of integrity. And it's really going to be a setup 
you know, at some point there will be a fall. And in a sense, probably a betrayal in the sense of thinking we were somewhere, but not far at all. Some of you know C.S. Lewis, who uh, <clears throat> was sort of a Christian theologian, but he's better known you know, for writing, what was it, the Narnia Chronicles? And, uh, but he gave this example in, this, in light of this, you know, people who haven't really integrated the different aspects of spiritual life. As somebody who's imagined, you know, they've got a lot done, they've really accomplished a bunch, only to discover not only, you know, have they not put the clothes on, they're still in bed, still in their pajamas, still asleep dreaming. That lack of integration is really like that. You know, where we think because we had a good set and we experienced a lot of stillness in a meditation, we saw lights or, you know, we had some kind of expansive meditation experience. It can feel like, oh, okay, I'm special, you know, but how do we handle money? How are we around power, where we have power, where we don't have power? You know, how are we behaving in the world? What are the quality of our relationships? What's that like? And there's um, three ways to think about this, looking at ethical conduct, the integrity of our actions, the integrity of our words, and even thoughts. And one is... In, we don't necessarily like to hear this, but when we think it through, we realize we definitely use this sort of ethical muscle of, for lack of a better word, the capacity to refrain, even to restrain ourselves from doing things we think aren't so good to do. Right? That's actually a muscle we want to have so when we're in the vicinity of doing something stupid, saying something we probably shouldn't say, taking something that isn't ours, or any place where we might act out some kind of greed, some kind of hate, hurting people with our words, we want that moral conscience to arise and say, I don't think you should do that. Stop. Right? And so that power, like in terms of our working on bringing mindful awareness, wisdom awareness to this place of relationship, we want, we rely on that power to refrain from doing something, saying something that we're inclined to do, but as we're doing it, because we're aware, mindfully aware, there's this voice of conscience that says, Last time you did something like this, it didn't turn out so well, right? I mean, it won't necessarily speak in words, but it will be that warning, that inner warning. And, you, and we actually want to cultivate that wholesome inner voice of restraint or of uh, even remorse, like even after we've done something. We want, like if it was actually unskillful, we want, it's not bad to feel bad. If we've done something unskillful and we've caused ourselves and others harm, we want it to, I mean, the yucky feeling is in a way a monument, this beautiful monument, that yucky feeling. Honey, don't do that again. That wasn't good. So instead of like, oh, I don't want to feel that yucky feeling, we, we actually want to honor it. Oh, that wound is going to protect me down the road. Because whenever I get close to doing something like this again, that wound is going to come to the forefront. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Be careful here. Because in the past, you acted in a way, you spoke in a way that didn't feel good afterward. So the pain, the remnants, what's left over from the past, unskillful action, informs the present moment. And the key is to uncover how that works. 
we want, I mean, this is like learning from the past. We don't want to bury the past. We want it to inform the present. We want it to show up as that kind of emotional <clears throat> feeling state. That's the proper role of memory. You know, in the same way that, you know, back when we were hunter-gatherers, you know, and we see a plant and it reminds us of something that tastes good, but it's a little different, but we're really hungry, so we go for it and then we get really sick, you know. Well, a wise person really remembers what it looks like, what it smells like, what it tastes like, because it doesn't want to make that mistake again. Oh, that wasn't a good thing to eat. And it's the same thing with our interactions, our way of showing up and being in community and being in relationship. What way of being in relationship with the world leaves a good taste, is enlivening, liberating, beautiful. And what ways of being in community leaves a really heavy taste, really causes harm for ourselves and others. So that's why the, the real emphasis, like to be a moral, happy person, we have to realize, I gave a couple early when I started the whole talks on the path, the point I made from the Buddhist teachings is the first insight is it matters. It matters how I'm showing up in the world. Everything matters, even how I'm thinking matters. And initially, that, can, that sense of responsibility can be overwhelming, and we might want to go back to the deluded thinking, it doesn't matter. Everything's so screwed up. You know, it's a dog-eat-dog world. People are taking advantage. I'm just going to get what I can get, try not to get stepped on. doesn't really matter. I'll do what I have to do, right? That kind of attitude. But a wise person notices that that's how the mind is relating, and it checks it out. Like, well, let's see how that, what does that leave? What kind of person do I become when I'm living with that kind of attitude? And what kind of person do I become when I um, act as if it does matter what I'm thinking, what I'm saying, and what I'm doing? That it, because quite literally, we become the person who said that. We become the person who did that. Like this mind, this mind moment, you could say, arises out of the previous mind moments. So who I am right now, this mind, this heart right now, is the mind, is the continuation, we should say, of the mind that said that back then and did that back then. So what are we, who are we setting in motion for the future by how I'm speaking, how I'm thinking and acting right now? So this is an important part of like, if you want to check this out, then spend some time these weeks really looking how restraint actually is operating in your life. And you'll see you couldn't really get along so well in life without it. Um, Ajahn Amaro, a British Buddhist monk, he's a wonderful teacher. Um, he's an abbot of a monastery in England, Amravati. And uh, he has a little book, Silent Rain, that I think you can get online. And he has that chapter on the precepts and ethical conduct. And uh, he likens it to not, you know, not having brought awareness to this part of your life or dismissing this part of your life is sort of driving a car without brakes. And, uh, <clears throat> well, it's nice to have brakes. And to, uh, yeah, just know that if I get someplace where I could do something really stupid, my heart, my mind has this capacity to hold back. Oh, don't do that. Don't say that. Don't think that. I've mentioned before in talks, you know, especially with my spouse, I realize that I can't even get away with like fuming in my mind. 
because if I let my mind spin in an unhealthy, unjust, unfair way, you know, because I'm venting, it gets picked up. It, get, it leaks eventually, right? You, we don't get away with anything. That's the bottom line. We don't get away with it. And the more we're just not trying to be good, but just trying to see how it all works, paying attention with awareness, we, we're willing to use that force of restraint because we care about our life. We care about other people. It's not like we're doing it for, to be tight. We're doing it because we don't want to drive off a cliff. You know, we don't want to hit something with our car. So we use the brake. You know, and we know, I mean, this is <clears throat> one of the precepts, the fifth precept, these training precepts is to not intoxicate the mind. And in the tradition, you know, there's nothing inherently evil about drugs and alcohol. But the problem is we tend to be more careless, right? And fearless about making mistakes. <laughs> Like, oh, what the heck. Everything seems like a good idea when we're inebriated. But when we're sober, it's like, oh, my God. Anybody not do something stupid when they were inebriated? Anybody get this far in life without having done something stupid? Even too much coffee or too much media, right? I mean, it's a drug, too. So we know like this, um, you know, we'd like to have a world, and we sort of hear it in the Buddhist tradition where we could just let things rip, you know, just, just let it all hang out, do whatever we want to do. We kind of like that, and we sort of think that's what some of the teachings are pointing to. You know, it's all nature, it's just stuff coming and going, don't get tight about it. And it's true, but the question is, how do we get to that place of full, unconditional release? And it really comes from cultivating this very precise care about how we're showing up in each moment, what we're thinking, what we're saying, and what we're doing. Initially, it feels kind of oppressive to care about the details, but it actually moves in the the direction of that unconditional release that we intuit is possible. But we can't go from being a jerk, you know, in one step to just like, okay, I'm a jerk, but I'm not going to get tight about it. I'm just going for it. (laughs) So initially, we, we notice there are a lot of habits here, you have habits too, right? But I'm, right now I'm concerned about these habits woven into this mind and body, heart, mind, and body. And I realize these habits, when acted out, have impact. And then the impact's being felt here. So I start to take care of my life. That restraint really comes from taking care. This is summed up by this famous uh, Buddhist saint, one of the important people who brought Buddhism up into Tibet back in maybe the 13th century, something like that. Padmasa Sambhava was this person's name. And uh, he's got this beautiful little pithy teaching. He said something like, although my mind, my understanding is as vast as the sky, my attention to karma, to intentional action, that's what karma means, to what I think, what I say, what I do, my attention to that is as fine as a grain of barley flour. Really precise. And they don't, they actually work together, that vast sense of release, that expansive sense of everything's happening on its own, nobody, no problem. Really, allows us to care about our speech, how we're relating, how we're showing up. 
So it's not about, I want that vast sense of space so I don't have to worry about the details. It's that vastness of equanimity, of peace, of really seeing the nature, the impersonal nature of everything that really allows us to hold all the complexity of our lives, how everything matters. That we're even touched by the mosquitoes that are trying to suck our blood or the little papery spiders that live in the window sills. You know, it's like, I don't, I'm not telling what you should do, but it matters. How we relate to them actually matters. How do we know it matters? Because when we take the, the time to get rid of the cobwebs without killing, it leaves an impression. Right? It feels good. And when you intentionally kill a spider, well, then that feels like it feels. And that's for each of you to check out. Well, what does that feel like? What impression is left in the heart when I do that, when I don't think that's important? Or whatever you might think and feel. The important question is, are you interested in checking out what that feels like? Who do you become when you do that? Because it's very, the convenient thing to say is, I already know it's okay. Right? We have a sort of a fixed idea about morality. As long as I'm not shooting people, you know, I'm on this side, I'm on the right side of the line, I don't need to think about it. But the teaching is like, no, it's, you don't need to think about it, but you want to know moment by moment how you're relating, how you're thinking, what you're saying, and what sort of thing that leaves in your heart, impression. So the first place to practice is really developing that muscle to restrain or refrain from acting. And really, it's like when you're not sure something is skillful or not, you want that pause button. Let me just hang out in the space for a moment so I can get a better taste of the intention to say what I'm inclined to say or do what I'm inclined to do. Let me just sense, what does that feel like? Skillful or unskillful? Tight or not tight? And then, like, or if it's words, you know, that Sylvia Burstein says, again, you know, well, is what I'm inclined to say, does it appear to be an improvement on silence? Is it actually contributing something? Is it in the direction of, you know, supporting understanding and coming together and healing, or is it divisive? It doesn't mean we can't speak words that are provocative or um, might actually hurt somebody, but maybe in the direction of healing ultimately, because, you know, that happens sometimes. We have to say something that's really going to hurt somebody, but it's the right thing to do. It feels right even though somebody was hurt, that maybe that's what they needed to see or experience to kind of make the changes that they need to make. Our responsibility is to not want to cause harm, but that doesn't mean we won't cause harm. Can you imagine being a living creature on this planet without causing harm? So we are going to step on toes, we are going to cause harm, but the intention is to not cause harm. And this is that complexity I was talking about. And so that really brings us to this next stage of practice with morality. First stage being the capacity, the muscle that we really want to develop to be able to refrain, to be able to pause, to take another turn, or to go another direction instead of the habit energies pushing the mind in one direction. But the moral consciousness going, wait, <clears throat> I don't trust this. This reminds me of something I saw somebody else do and didn't work out so well. Or remember doing myself and didn't work out so well. Let me pause. Let me see if there's another way here that has a better taste, better feeling in the heart. The next way is really more at the positive aspiration. You know, so qualities 
like patience, forgiveness, kindness, gratitude, and appreciation. So the one example that I remember Joseph Goldstein used is some car driving on an interstate, and a person who doesn't have a lot of moral wisdom, you know, they're cruising along, and the next thing they know, they're at a Dairy Queen, They've taken an exit. They've driven down the road. They've turned in the parking lot. They've ordered, you know, the hot dogs, the blizzards, the this, the that. And they're going. They have no clue how they got there. Right? So that's a mind that doesn't have restraint, doesn't have a positive aspiration to go from A to B, to not get distracted, to not... I mean, you could... You could uh, tell the story any number of ways, like you didn't have any money, so you had to hold up the Dairy Queen to get your blizzards and your hot dogs and the whatever. You know, so that you got in, it was a mess, and there was hard to get your car in, so you hit another car. And So the point is, we can just find ourselves in really dicey places, and we don't even remember how we got into that place where we're really acting out doing something that, oh my God, this is not how I thought my day would go. You know where we see this a lot? It's interesting how we see this a lot in movies, right? I find these movies really hard to watch. You see, you know, three, four minutes in, you kind of get the sense that this person, through some set of circumstances, is going to go from a sort of ordinary life to a living hell. And it's just a couple moves. And a lot of people here at Common Ground uh, do monthly or some even do weekly classes in the different prisons all around Minnesota and Wisconsin. And they, you know, over the years, they get to know some of these folks who are incarcerated. And the stories they tell, I've done a little prison work myself, bringing the practice into the prisons. But... Uh, you know, the stories that people tell about, I mean, they're kind of like us, right? Except one thing led to another, getting caught. And again, you know, we could do a little survey here. How many of us were close to doing something really stupid? Something simple like driving when we weren't fully sober, right? Where we could have hit somebody or had an accident or done something stupid. Any number of things like that where we our lives would have taken a drastically different turn. So we can drive on that interstate with a lot of restraint, like we feel the tug to take, you know, to see what's down that exit or off that exit, or did I see a Dairy Queen sign or you know, so we can but no no no. But we're using that sort of forceful parental you know, like, get a grip, guy, don't do that. And basically, a wholesome use of fear. But it's a bit of a blunt instrument, and it's nice to have a few other ways to manage living in community with other human beings, other living beings. So another way is to cultivate a positive aspiration. Still want the restraint, but we don't want to overly rely on restraint. So to create over the years in our lives a real positive, like who, how I can be. And this is where it's so nice to have role models of somebody who you respect, who has a lot of integrity. And it's like, and they have the ease, their life seems to work pretty well because they have that moral integrity about what they do and what they don't do. And to see it as a positive, like, oh, that would be so cool to just be able to get from A to B on the interstate and to see all these possibilities for acting out, but just to keep my attention on, no, I really want to go from A to B. Like, that's what I want. And yeah, I feel the tugs, but I'm keeping that positive thinking mind. It's like you know about good habits that we have, whatever it is, eating well, getting exercise, volunteering and contributing in different ways. And it feels good and we just want to stick to it. 
because it brings joy, brings a sense of well-being into our lives. And that's what generosity and moral integrity does. It's sort of like what helps us actually sleep at night. Oh, I was a good human being. The Buddha calls this the bliss of blamelessness. Like, I'm somebody... Another way it's described in the Buddhist tradition is, I'm somebody who you don't have to be afraid of. It's, a, it's like it feels good. Or I'm somebody who trusts my heart. Like if I get in a dicey situation, it's so nice to know that my heart has this moral compass that's not just about restraint, but it's like we'd say in our common language, the heart knows who it is that I'm not the person who does this. I'm, I'm this person that cares about other beings. I'm this person who doesn't cheat, even if I could get away with it. So it's sort of interesting, you know, like in this way, you know, if you saw a wallet and there were $600 bills in the wallet, you know, and nobody's around, you know, what would we do? And just that sense of, Want, you know, I could, I could easily take the money. No one would see it. But I'd be the one, this heart, this mind going forward would be the heart that did that. And, and it's really nice, like, instead of just having to refrain, like, I don't want to get caught, to have this ideal, like, no, I'm somebody who returns things. I'm somebody who doesn't take things that weren't given to me. And just that upliftment, like to learn, it's subtle, I mean, relatively speaking, but to learn to feel that upliftment of knowing the heart is good. The heart is sort of living with this community sense of being in this together as opposed to a dog-eat-dog sort of perspective, you do what you can get away with. You know, it's like we call that the golden rule. But to see that not as a, but as an upliftment, like, oh, that feels good to know that, that my heart cares about that. Even, both of these, certainly the restraint, you know, it, it takes a certain vigilance, and it's, you, it's a skillful use of fear, but you're still using some fear of acting in ways that would cause ourselves and others harm. And even the positive ideal is still got a little tension in it, where it's like, I really want to be this person. I really aspire to be somebody who speaks truthfully, who doesn't lie. And so there's a third, which is a kind of morality that doesn't take parental energy. These first two, right, you can see it takes a little parental, internally, parental energy, where there's a certain sense of conscience to refrain and conscience to aspire to become this person who doesn't deviate from these um, ideals, these ideas of the way things should be. And, and the deepest freedom is we've learned to trust the habit energies, the wholesome habit energies of the heart that have been carefully cultivated that we don't need any parental energy. Then we can really let it rip. Because now it's like we don't need to be trying to be good at this point in practice, and it's not like, oh, we're just using restraint for the first 20 years and then the middle 20 years of our spiritual life, we're doing the ideal. It's like different moments. Some moments the mind is like in that mindful place and we don't need to try to be good. Because the mindfulness is so strong, it's like the feedback is immediate. The sensitivity is so strong that if I act with, hostility immediately gets dropped in the same way that if you notice you were holding a hot pan, you just drop it because it doesn't feel right to be holding a hot pan. 
And to be speaking in an abusive way or to be cheating or to be... It just doesn't make sense when the mind is really present in that radical way. And so then you don't have to try to be good or refrain from being bad because the sensitivity creates its own protection. And this is something we have to see, experience, to believe. And <clears throat> excuse me, in the tradition, we talk about it when mindfulness gets enough momentum, then you can even drop the idea of being somebody who's doing the practice. And then we get, you know, people describe it in different ways, but you get that sense of effortlessness and flow, and things are happening on their own. And the, the sense is, this is the freedom that the Buddha and others have been talking about. Where the goodness isn't somebody trying to be good or somebody trying to avoid being bad. The goodness is just part of this natural unfolding of our lives that depends on this radical sensitivity that mindful awareness brings. And you'll notice sometimes when that's relatively strong like that, and then you'll, you know, one of the ways we notice it, and then I'll leave it here so we have a few minutes for other people to speak. But one of the ways you notice you're in this third area of practicing morality is you'll see yourself wanting to sort of take charge of refraining and doing good, and you'll notice how unnecessary that parental energy is. It's like, it's like wisdom sort of says, no, 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 you don't, you don't need at this moment. It's the same thing like with mindful awareness. You don't need to go back to your breath. Have you ever saw yourself like being really present? And then this old habit sort of kicks in, oh, you should come back to the breath. But the mind was already radically present, not distracted, balanced, clear. But there's this sort of neurotic practice voice going, Oh no, you gotta come back to your meditation object. You gotta connect and sustain. But then wisdom knows that's just a neurotic parental, you know, Dharma voice that that is needed sometimes when there's a lot of distraction, but it's not needed in this moment. And it's the same thing with morality, where you, you have that kind of parental energy doing its thing because it's a habit. But there's some understanding that that parental morality isn't needed right now because the whole system has an integrity that's built on a radical sensitivity that comes from mindfulness. When the mind is really sensitive, really clear, both in terms of a breadth of awareness but also real subtlety or depth of awareness, it's not actually possible to act out. Being mean, being greedy, requires delusion, distraction, disconnection. Try it. When you feel really present, really grounded, really connected, try to be a jerk. It just doesn't work. And when you see somebody acting with a lot of integrity, you'll see... You know, I mean, sometimes people can act with a lot of sort of moral integrity, but it's just a habit. They're not actually present. But that's good. I mean, it's better than not having that habit, of course. But sometimes you see somebody with a lot of integrity, and it's really arising that they're just completely there in the moment. And it's really a great inspiration, you know, to inspire us what's possible. They're not operating with a fixed view of what's right and wrong. Their sense of what's useful and not useful, skillful and not skillful, is really coming from the sensitivity, moment by moment by moment. And as the moments shift, their understanding of how to show up will also shift because it isn't coming from a fixed place. It's really coming from listening and sensing. So it might be nice to hear, we have about eight minutes from maybe two or three of you, just your own learnings in this whole world of 
of morality, ethical conduct, and the three levels or three ways of practicing as a restraint, keeping ourselves from acting in ways that we suspect are unhelpful, as an ideal. Yeah, start us off. And say your name if you don't mind. Hi, I'm Tony. Um, I liked how you described uh, care or vigilance um, because the... Well, I don't know what word um, you, you were, I guess, translating, but uh, the Buddha's alleged last words um, are like, uh, um, all compounded things fall apart and uh, vigilance will light your path or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, the word vigilance there is literally um, non-blind drunkenness. Um, which fits very well with uh, what you were saying. So yeah. I, I enjoyed that very much. Apamada is the word yeah. for vigilance. Exactly. And vigilance is a nice word because it means like keeping the light on too, right? Mm-hmm. That's what it means because yeah. it matters. Yeah. Thanks for that great yeah, point. Thanks. Who else? What have you been learning? Yeah, Kevin, you want to pass it back? Um, so one thing I really struggle with a lot is just, is talking to people. Um, I, I, and I feel like I have a lot of awareness when I talk to them, but I just noticed this throughout the day, like, it's just a big thing. They'll be talking and I'm just following along and I, I think I'm just maybe really concentrating, like, just making sure I'm paying attention and being able to like respond appropriately to what they're saying. But I have a hard time speaking my mind or disagreeing or uh, challenging. Um, I'm just, you know, I just, I'm just, I think I have, maybe I just had to put so much energy into just making sure like I'm paying attention to what they're saying. And it happens a lot where, Later on, it comes out that I didn't want to do what they wanted me to do or, uh, you know, didn't agree with whatever they were saying. And they'll say, well, well why didn't you just say something? You, you, you know, I asked you or I said this thing and you just didn't say anything. And now uh, we got this problem. Or, um, But, yeah, I just it's just in the moment. It's I'm a little like a deer in the headlights. Just like, well, I just was paying attention and, and I... I don't know if it's like too much, like an over-focus or a, a delusion or I don't know. Or even like that truthfulness of, you know, especially in a business setting, we may not feel like we have permission to say to the person, I'm having a little hard time tracking, and so can we slow this down? Let me see if I got it right. This is what I heard you say. Because that might build in some time then to feel comfortable responding. But it but that uh, you know that what is the nature of the relationship? What's the nature of the power in the relationship? Do are you in power? Do you feel empowered to speak your truth? Rarely. Yeah. Yeah, I rarely just have that impetus like, oh I can interrupt this person or or at least like find that spot where I can just say, actually, uh, here's what I think, or um, or I'm usually just almost overly polite, like, well, I don't want to interrupt, or I don't want to say anything. Or And know. it might be polite to them, but you're the other person in the interaction, and is it polite to you? Right. So that's the, the way that wisdom works. It, it cares about everything And it doesn't even necessarily favor one over the other, but we can't neglect taking care of ourselves, just like you don't want to neglect taking care of the other. And so it is complex, but rightfully so, you know, the way you're communicating this with us, there's something left over. That's why you're bringing it up for us, right? So that means there's some mindfulness and some moral sensitivity. I'm not so sure I was skillful That doesn't mean we know the way out, like how to be skillful in that kind of a situation. But at least knowing that we're not fully skillful will inspire us to pay attention. 
what's not being listened to in the moment, right? And so, like, your desire to hear and understand what they're saying may not allow you to also sense what you're feeling and your response is. So you might, and it might be embarrassing to say, we need to slow this down, or I need to interrupt and just think for a moment. And that, and that you know, people do that where the repeating back can be nice in all kinds of levels, but one thing it does is it gives you some time to feel into what you're hearing that person say and to see if anything does need to be said or whether, no, you know, I don't necessarily agree with it, but I'm not going to say anything. That's an okay strategy sometimes not to say something. But it should be done in the light of awareness instead of some chronic habit of not taking care of ourselves. Thanks. That feels really comfortable for me to be able to do that. So yeah, thanks. I appreciate you bringing that up, Kevin. Cool. We have time for a shorter comment. We have just a minute or two. Anybody like to go real quick? Yeah, Kyle. Wait for the mic, though. Hi, I'm Kyle. I'm just curious if you're planning to talk more about the topic of right speech specifically, because I was kind of interested in that specifically yeah. around. Next, yeah, next week. Okay. Yeah, so really around truthfulness, not using words as a weapon, slander, not using harsh, loud. Th- that's an interesting one to talk about. It sounds a little bit culturally specific, <laughs> which is good to unpack. And even idle words, like talking for the sake of talking, is how the Buddha talked about it. So that's what we'll go next week. Okay. Yeah, I'm interested in that. Yeah, as we all should be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's leave it here. It's 9 o'clock. Just take a breath. You can give the mic back to Kevin. Letting go of the words. Thanks again, everyone, for coming. Nice to be together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.